And we may say phrases like, I don't, I don't need this right now, to which God answers, this is exactly what you need right now. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. I am generally aware on the preaching calendar of where we'll be three months out. So I do about three months overview, and then once we get to that month, I, I really dig into those passages that I have kind of mapped out. And I was explaining this to someone one time, and they said, well, doesn't that, I mean, does that really leave room for the Holy Spirit? I mean, because that's, you know, that's like highly planned, and, and um, you know, does, does that really leave room for the Holy Spirit? And I find that I see the Holy Spirit most clearly work when, when I plan that way. Work through and in that system. Because we have been in two weeks, for two weeks now, studying the Holy Spirit from the Upper Room Discourse And we talked about how he's the comforter and the teacher. And I have no idea three months ago that this week and this time and the, the culture of our church and the family of our church and the needs of our church that we would have pain and trial like we have had and difficulty like we have had. And so I get to show you week from this passage, week by week, what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches, and He comforts, and He guides, and He leads. I mean, those are just a few of those things, but from this passage we see that. And He Himself, as the Spirit, by working months out to lead to these passages has proven in the lives of His people how He works. Because I have no idea the needs of our people three months out. The hurts of our people three months out. But He who searches hearts, who knows the heart and the mind of God, He knows. And so I don't know, I don't know a better proof, there is no better proof for what the Holy Spirit does than just seeing Him do it Himself. And so what a privilege it is to come to these passages, to acknowledge the needs of our family, and say, look, look at Him go. Look at Him work. Amen? 
Well, we are in chapter 14 this morning. We're in verse 25 down to verse 31. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with a complex issue in the passage at the beginning, even though this issue doesn't arise until the very end. And the reason I'm dealing with it at the beginning is because I don't want to end with it. Okay? Because it's not, it's not necessarily significant for you to understand the passage, but it is significant within the general context of the Upper Room Discourse and understanding John. But I don't want to end with it because it's a very technical thing, and I find most people aren't excited by the technical things. All right? Is that true? Is that maybe your, your situation, your case? But I do think it's important to deal with it because uh, we're, we're trying to explain the passage. And if we're going to be, do our best to be faithful to explain the passage, we're not going to avoid things that, that are difficult. Because the skeptics certainly don't. Okay? And so I'm going to uh, tell you right off the bat, I'm going to deal with it first and explain it to you. And then we're going to go to 25 and begin to work through the, the, the chapter, okay? The passage. And this issue is actually found in verse 31, and it's the very last line. I'm also going to say this before I read it. This is, I'm dealing, we're, we're now in the realm of opinion, okay? We're now in the realm of opinion, and so my opinion is not law here. It's my opinion. I'm not going to preach my opinion like it's God's word, all right? Verse 31, the very last line says, rise let us go from here. You say, well, why is that a problem? That doesn't seem like an issue. I have said ever since we've been studying the Upper Room Discourse that the Upper Room takes place from the end of chapter 13 to the beginning of chapter 18. Have I not? Okay. Does it sound like in verse 31 that they get up and leave? Does it sound like that? It does, right? So why do I think that? I think that because if you go to chapter 18... In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. Okay, now, here's what skeptics like to do. They like to go to passages like this, and they say, John's contradicting himself. John is confused, and therefore, you can't really take what he has to say seriously. Okay, I don't think that's what's going on. In fact, I know that's not what's going on. Because up until this point, and I hope you've noticed it as well, we've noticed John is a very intentional writer. John is being very purposeful with how he does things. So there's a seeming conflict between verse 31 and chapter 18, 1, that seems to indicate that Jesus got up and left, or that he left twice. Uh, but that is not what I think is going on. I think there's, I think, I'm going to give you two opinions because I think they're the best opinions, and I'm going to tell you which one is mine, and then, but there's lots of views on this, all right? And now you see why I'm dealing with it at the, at the beginning, because we didn't want to, we wouldn't want to end it this way, right? All right. Uh, there is a view that when Jesus and his disciples left the room, and uh, the, that, that he says this at the end of verse 31 as what is called a rhetorical exit device, if you can think back to the Old Testament, there are multiple passages that reveal with that, that, that deal with um, a saint's or a leader's last words to his followers. We call those 
testamentary writings. You can almost think of a will, last will and testament. We call those testamentary writings. So you can think about Joshua in chapters 22 to 24, or David in 1 Chronicle 28 to 29, or essentially the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last words to the people of Israel. We call those testamentary writings. Now Jesus is leaving his final words, his last words with his disciples. These are his final words to his disciples. And, and so some people look at this passage and they say when Jesus is saying, let rise and let us go from here, this is almost Jesus' way of marking or emphasizing that it's another way of saying these are the last words I'm saying to you, okay? That you should listen. These are his final words. So the, the idea is that it's, it's an emphatic device. And you say, well, where would they get? That doesn't make any sense. It's actually fairly similar to sometimes what we read in first century literature that's not, not biblical. That's not necessarily my view. The reason, I think, the reason I don't think that's my view is because none of those other guys, David, Moses, Joshua, were going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. Okay? The other view is painstakingly simple. Very simple. And I say the other view. There's lots of views. The other view I'm presenting to you. And it's this idea. That Jesus says, rise and let us go from here. And they all get their stuff together. And they start to get ready to go. And Jesus has a few more words for them. And then he prays for them. And then they leave. Okay? Many of you have experienced this in someone's home. You go to someone's house, maybe it's someone you're close to, or maybe it's someone you're, you know, you're not as close to, you're getting to know them, and you're hanging around, and you're like, oh man, it's, it's 9.30, bedtime is in whatever. And someone says that, and that's their way of marking, it's time to go. Usually, it's the husband, right? We, we got places to go. I say to my wife, so we live 10 minutes from our house, I say to my wife, it is, so if it's 11.30 now, I say it's 11.40 at home, right? That's my way of reminding her it's time to go. In our family, I'm usually the one talking. I'll admit that, honey. All right. But we've all experienced this. You're at someone's house. Someone says it's time to go. And then the conversation ensues again. I think that's what's going on. I think it's actually very simple. Because it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would say, rise and let's go from here. And then if you look at chapter 16, he doesn't say that much. I mean, he says a little bit, but it wouldn't take that long to say it. And then he prays for his disciples. That's all of chapter 17 and 17. So I really don't think it's that much of a problem. I think skeptics are making way too much out of this. I don't think it's all that complex. I think Jesus says, let's get ready to go. He has a few final comments, and then he prays for them, and then they depart and they leave. All right? You say, well, why did you go through all of that? Because it's in the Bible. All right? And it's there. And I want you to know it. Because we're not going to just leave stuff out. All right. Now, let's get into the fun, not technical part. We've already talked about the impact of the Spirit and, and the guiding and leading of the Spirit in our own congregation. We're going to go back to those things today. But as you think about this passage, remember there's certain things in context that we've got to remember, that we've got to constantly return to, that this is a transitional passage with the idea of Passover in this passage, taking the supper in this passage. So we're transitioning from an old covenant to a new, even though, the, even though the supper really wasn't that big of a deal. We see it in, uh, John doesn't give that much time to it. We definitely see the implications of the old transition from the old covenant to the new, a transition from 
uh, Old Testament uh, law to now the, the, the new law and system of the new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, there, and, and thereby the, the new system of discipleship that we see. This is a transition, perhaps most theologically, from, from the transition of the presence of Jesus to the sending of the Spirit, now the time and the age of the Spirit, and that's really where we find ourselves today. But I don't want you to forget that I want you to remember the tone of the room, the feel of the room, the temperature of the room, because Jesus is leaving, and so his disciples are feeling sadness, and they're feeling confusion, and so this is a comfort-oriented passage. This is a, a clarifying passage. Jesus is dealing with their hurt. He's dealing with their complexity. And he's dealing with their confusion. And this morning, well, let's, let's read our passage. We are in John 14. Let's start in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This morning I want you to see from the passage that resting in the provision and the Spirit and the peace of the Son make the plans of God possible when life is painful. Resting in the provision of the Spirit and the peace of the Son make the plans of God possible when life is painful. Well, Jesus is going to reiterate His truth on the teaching he's on the spirit he's going to go back to the teaching of the spirit and the reason is is because it's so important not just for the disciples but the reason is it's important for the unfolding of the rest of the new testament the entire church age is built on the arrival of the spirit the work of the spirit but but jesus is specifically addressing how the spirit is going to help these men in this room remember especially because judas has left at this point judas has no part in the greater plans of god because he's he's the betrayer but these men in this room have Greater, greater plans, or have plans in the, in 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 the purposes of God has have goals and 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 per, and future in the, the workings of God, and so they need the Spirit so that they truly can, as Christ tells them, accomplish greater works than the Son. And so let's continue this I, this idea and Christ's teaching of. The Spirit, and first of all, look together at the teacher of truth. The teacher of truth. And the reason we're using that phrase is because we've already seen it uh, in, the, in the previous passage that He will send a helper, even the, the teacher of, the tr- of truth. Remember this word is, what's this word? Someone say it for Spirit. Paraclete, yes. Remember that word paraclete? There's lots of different, there's lots of different 
connotations or implications behind that one word. It can mean it can mean teacher, it can mean advocate, it can mean helper, it can mean comforter, and the, that's the reason John uses this word for the Spirit because there's lots of different implications. It's this multifaceted description of one person, the person, the Spirit of God. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Even in this line, Jesus marks that there's a time that what? He will not be with them. And so he needs them to understand the, the Spirit is coming, the teacher is coming, because he also needs them to understand he is going. He's leaving. And remember, this departure, and when he says departure, he doesn't just mean he's leaving this earth. He means he's going to die, be raised, and then leave this earth. The departure is the hour of glorification, and the hour of glorification is the death on the cross. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and the Father whom I will send in my name, Jesus sends the Spirit as his gift to the people. He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so you see a very, a very basic role of the Spirit. And I don't say basic in, in, in a denigrating way, but the fundamental, that's a better word, the fundamental function of the Spirit is that He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now remember, this is, this is specific truth to the disciples, but there's general truth for all of those who follow Christ. So I tend to think that specifically to the disciples, they understood more about the unfolding plan of God because I think the Spirit revealed to them more. He will teach you all things. I think there are many things that we will not see in this life, we will see in the age to come, that probably the disciples the who became apostles understood. But I love this very practical, very, very uh, almost real-time description the Holy Spirit gives. And bring to your remembrance. Here's another way you can say that. He will help you remember things. And, and there will be things that you forget that you don't even know. That when you remember them, you will understand. In John chapter 2, verse 22, it reads, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Back in this passage is when he tells the religious rulers and the disciples, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up. So when Jesus says in John 2, tear down this temple, he's talking about his body and in three days it will be raised up. This is what the Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus means in John uh, 14, that back in chapter 2, when therefore he was raised from the dead, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had spoken this. Do you see that? So he says something in 2, or he, he, he says something in 2, I will be raised after three days, and after the resurrection, someone's standing around, Peter or John or one of the disciples, and goes, oh, that's what he meant. I remember that now. I understand that now. What they didn't see before, the Spirit opens their eyes to now. 
John chapter 12, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. And in John chapter 12, the first part of that chapter is the triumphal entry. So Jesus comes fulfilling Old Testament scriptures, acknowledged as Messiah, and then days later, condemned by the people who were acknowledging him. The disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, died, buried, taken up, died, buried, raised, taken up, then they remembered these things had been written about him. And so it's like the Spirit. I'm just doing my best to, to be illustrative here, okay? It's like the Spirit is the disciples' divine um, notification reminder. By the way, here it is. It's time you understand this now. It's time you see this now. And as the, as the, the Spirit brings these reminders to their heart and to their mind, it's, oh. Now, this is only two instances that we have in the book of John. And there are a few in Acts that, in, that have this kind of terminology. But can you just imagine with me for a moment. Can you imagine after years, spending a few years with Jesus and having a knowledge of the Old Testament law after Jesus dies and is glorified and the Spirit begins to work in the, the disciples' lives, can you imagine the things they begin to understand? Oh, man. Things were coming together like crazy. And things were clicking all over the place. That's astounding. And can you imagine what would happen if they began to talk about those things? Read the entire book of Acts. It's what it is. Pentecost, Acts 2, is just all of Old Testament scriptures making sense in Peter's mind and then him preaching about it. Which founds the church. It's amazing truth here. And this is what the Spirit does for you. It's not a different spirit, brother and sister. This is why in times of pain or in times of hardship or in times of temptation to sin or in times of rejoicing, a scripture will come to your mind. Or when you're giving the gospel to someone and you're, I don't remember the Bible, and the Bible comes to your mind. It's not that the human brain is really impressive. Is that the Spirit is infinitely wise. And He does great works in the lives of broken, feeble people. And He takes people who have no aptitude or ability for spiritual things apart from Jesus Christ, and He divinely works in them ability to accomplish God's infinite gospel plans. So he teaches them. He's going to come back to this teaching of the Spirit in chapter 16. But now, now he focuses on the, as I called it earlier, the, the temperature of the room. And he's done this a few times already, but he focuses now on the, the temperature, the tone of the room. Look at me, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. 
I'm going away. I'm going to leave something with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Contrast, not as the world gives to you. It can't offer you anything. It can't offer you certainty. It can't offer you stability. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How can Christ instruct that they should not be troubled, they should not be perplexed, they should not be in turmoil? We've seen this word troubled when Jesus arrives on the scene of Lazarus' death and he was troubled in his spirit. Don't be afraid. How can he say these things to them? How can he expect these things from them? Because he's leaving with them a divine kind of peace that this earth does not offer. And this is not just... Sometimes when you read peace in the New Testament, it has the idea of inner tranquility. This is bigger than that. This kind of... This kind of peace should be thought of as a security of life, not just emotion and not just spirit, but a certainty of life. It's actually the biblical idea that we see introduced in the Old Testament of shalom. And I once heard, I once heard a, a Jewish scholar summarize shalom this way. Shalom, peace, is life the way it should be. And God is the one who intends that life for His people. Perhaps the best summary of this life is in Isaiah 32. Until the, listen, Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be Peace and the result of righteousness, listen, quietness and trust forever. And this is a peace only provided through God who by His Son reconciles enemies to Himself. And that peace treaty is signed with the blood of His Son. We who stood in opposition now stand in His home as children, not with our fists raised, but our knees bowed and our hands in praise, lifted in praise. So Jesus offers them this Peace that nothing else, that certainly this world cannot offer them. Now listen, this, this is not the first mention of the peace. Remember what, what has just been said. God and the Son will make a home with the people. That, that as they hear this word and keep this word, they will understand as a disciple of Jesus they'll be they'll, they'll understand this peace because they'll be functioning as God intended and this peace comes from the, the, the presence of God well, look at me verse 23 Jesus answered him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him where God makes his home is ultimate and enduring peace 
and He has made it with His disciples who obey Him. This promise is not merely a circumstantial emotion or a band-aid, but an enduring assurance that those in whom God and the Son make their home, the Spirit fills and will know a taste of life the way God in His infinite love for His children intended them to enjoy life the way it should be. Absent from sin, present with God. And that kind of peace transports us from a place of darkness, confusion, and pain and into rest in the triune God in whom is light and certainty and healing. This this peace promises not just a better life free of difficulty here, but a better life altogether and one that is to come. And so he offers this peace to them and, and he almost tells them that they should have been expecting this. Look with me at verse 28. You heard me say I'm going to say to you I'm going away. You heard me say it. But what else did he hear them say? They hear him say, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now Jesus flips the script a little bit and says, I know you're sad, but you, sh- you should actually be feeling a sense of joy. And so thirdly, and the disciples' reason for rejoicing. The disciples' reason for rejoicing. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. He says, so you're, you're feeling grief, you're, you're feeling this confusion, you're, you're feeling this, this, this turmoil, but if you would have listened, and if you understand what's going on, you would know I am going away, but I am coming back. And if you truly loved me, you would rejoice, because I'm going to the Father. Where I am going is better. And when I go, it will be better for you because then the Spirit will come and the Spirit will bring you peace. Their grief was attached to their perspective of Christ, but their perspective of Christ was wrong. They were sad because Jesus was going away and they wanted Jesus to stay and free them from Rome. Their perspective of Christ was political, human, and physical. Thus, their, sadly, their sadness was an earthly disappointment. But Christ wanted them to have heavenly and spiritual priorities in order that they may rejoice in God's plans. And so if you want to think about it, New, uh, Romans 12 terminology, Jesus was weeping with them, but they weren't rejoicing with Him. He was sad with them, feeling their pain, but he had a sense of joy in which they were completely missing out. Because he was going to the Father. And to be with the Father is far better. But he doesn't just say, I'm going away. He says, I'm, I'm coming to, um, I will come to you. And when I come to you, then begins eternal presence with the Father. Father. 
And so where are you on your plans and your perspectives? Because just like their grief was attached to their perspective of Christ, therefore their, their disappointment was earthly sadness, our perspective of Christ will filter our joy. It will constrict and restrain our peace. Or we will misunderstand Jesus so that we get our priorities off so that our grief is attached to a wrong definition and to this world. And we know that if our grief is attached to this world, this world cannot offer peace. My not as the world gives do I give peace. My peace I give to you. So where's your perspective of Jesus this morning? Are you resting in that peace? Not that the world gives, but that only He gives. Are you resting in the Spirit's presence? Are you trusting in the priority and and are you prioritizing the plans of God so that we are not attached with earthly emotions to insufficient things in this world but our heart clings to a sufficient savior who offers enduring peace given to us by an infinitely loving God and being taught to us that God being taught to us and in this life being comforted by his good spirit. All right, verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe. So in verse 29, I want you to see the disciples' basis for belief. So in verse 27, we had their reason, in 28, we had their reason for rejoicing. Verse 29, we have their basis for belief. And now I have told you before it takes place. Um, and I think that it here is actually is very general. I think that it is not specific. I think that it is kind of everything that he has been talking about up until this point. The glorification and the coming of the Spirit. Okay, Death, departure, resurrection, coming of the Spirit. What he's saying is I'm telling you this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And I'm telling, I'm telling you this is going to happen now so that when it does, you will believe. And this, this passage, this is, a, this is a fascinating thing that John does. Because what is, what's the reason for the book of John? What is John trying to do? He's trying to help people believe. I'm glad you got that. I would, I would quit if you didn't get it. All right. He's trying to help people believe. These things were written. Jesus did many more signs in the presence of disciples, but these signs were written that you might believe in the name of Jesus, and in believing him, you might have life. Right? You might believe Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing him, you might have life. So the entire book functions to help people believe. That's what John is doing. He's presenting a case. John was John is an apologetics book. When you say apologetics, we're it's it's the it's now it's a philosophical Christian Christian philosophical study uh, to give an answer an apologia and a defense for the reason the hope that lies within you, um, and that's what John is doing. He's presenting a case. He's presenting a long argument for why you should believe that Jesus is who he says he is, 
and believing, and if Jesus is who he says he is, you are accountable to him. You cannot escape the decision to believe or not to believe. But, but notice the scope of Christ's statement here. Who is the specific audience in verse 29? The specific audience hasn't changed. These are his disciples. These are the ones who have been following him. Why is that so unique that Jesus, why is it unique that Jesus would say this? Because you would think these people have already believed, right? You would think they've already bought in hook, line, and sinker. You would think they're already right there with him. But he's saying, you, even my followers, now the 11, you need a little more evidence. You need another assurance to help you believe. Now, Jesus is going to tell them the Spirit is coming again. He's going to do it again, another time, not just in chapter 16, which we'll get to, but in Acts chapter 1. He's going to promise them the Spirit will come. The Spirit, the Spirit will come and you will be witnesses. Okay, when the Spirit comes, you will be witnesses. So he's assuring them that the Spirit will come, and then when the Spirit comes, they will be witnesses. And so this, this fits very logically in the basis of, of verse 28. The reason for the rejoicing, he's going away. If you had loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And remember we said their grief was attached to their perspective of Christ, which means, which means their emotions were off because their perspective of Christ was off. Therefore, they weren't rejoicing that Jesus was going away to the Father because they didn't understand what he was doing. Which obviously means their faith isn't where it should be yet. Their belief isn't where it should be yet because their understanding isn't where it should be yet. And th this is, if, if we go to Acts 1, when Jesus tells them again, right before he ascends, that the Spirit's coming, he promises the Spirit's coming, this is still where they are. Do you remember their question to Jesus right before he ascends? Will you now restore the kingdom? Right before he goes back to heaven. He is literally seconds from ascending to his father. And what's the disciples' question? I think you forgot to do something. <laughs> I think you forgot to overthrow Rome. Will you now restore the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you will receive power. Your concern is power. Political power. But you will receive power of a different kind when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses. Which assure, like now we, that passage helps us understand this passage. They still, if, if right before Jesus ascends, they don't believe it and they need more rationale, they certainly don't get it right before Jesus is about to leave this earth, or right, right before he's about to leave to die. They just don't get it yet. They're not there yet. And I don't say that critically. I don't say that judgmentally. I'm not saying I would have had it if I were one of the disciples. I don't think I would have. That's just where they were. They didn't get it yet. But note, the very thing, and this is a hard truth, brothers and sisters, the very thing 
that they were struggling with that was causing them pain, that was causing them confusion, that Jesus was leaving, that Jesus was talking about going without restoring the kingdom. The very thing that was causing them pain, that was causing them fear, was causing them confusion, would later function to strengthen their faith. Exactly where they were insufficient in their faith, is what, according to verse 29, and from the mouth of Jesus, was precisely what they needed to strengthen their faith. Do you see that? I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you will believe. And, and I... And so much of this, remember Acts, like I just said, Acts 1 and 2, 1, 1 through 3, the first few chapters, really help us understand this. Because do you think, once, once these men saw Peter open up his mouth and begin to proclaim Christ, and the Old Testament Scriptures start making sense, like we talked about this morning, and the, and the, the, the tongues of fire appear over the servants of God, and they start proclaiming the Gospel in different languages and in different tongues, and, and thousands of souls come to Christ in one day and are baptized or added to the church. Do you think that after all of that, once the Spirit comes, then these men believe? I do. This. Can, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine these men standing around watching the droves of people confess Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, lining up to be baptized in the pools of Jerusalem? And these men are standing around just hearing Peter preach this masterful message from the Old Testament about the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what's going through these men's head? Greater works will He do when I have departed. This is incredible. And so what Jesus says will happen happens. But in this moment, that's the victory that's coming later. That's the high point that's coming later. Right here, the disciples are hurting. And they're fearful. And they're confused. And you may feel for the strengthening of your faith that you need to be delivered from the adversity that you're experiencing just like the disciples probably felt. We need to be freed from Rome. And Jesus is here to do that. Rome was not nice to Israel. They made life difficult. Persecution hadn't... The violent Neronian persecution hadn't started yet. That would happen later. But they made Israel's life difficult. And Israel had been in bondage for their entire existence. So of course they want Jesus to free them. And so you can imagine why the disciples are so confused that they want out of this experience. And you can probably empathize with them. You just want out of this adversity. And brother or sister, I understand. I've been there too. It would just be better if something different was going on. 
And I shared this with, with someone just a few weeks ago. In my own heart recently, I've had to really come to the Lord and just say, all right. The, way, the best way to describe it was just to say, it'd be great if you did different things than you're doing. I, and we've all felt that, right? I know you're good. I know you're kind. I know you're loving. I know you keep the promises of your word, but could you do different things? But when we understand these truths and we see this kind of comfort, we understand in God that exactly what He is doing is exactly what I need. And I don't get it. But He does. And we may say phrases like, I don't, I don't need this right now. To which God answers, this is exactly what you need right now. And we see that in this verse precisely is what the, what the disciples didn't want is exactly what God would use later to bolster their belief in His promises. And this is a promise, as we said, this is a promise-oriented text. When you see these things, you will believe and Jesus, as we see, is beginning to draw this to a conclusion. Even as I mentioned the function of verse 31, I think the whole conversation is kind of winding down. He just says a few more things before he gets to the high priestly prayer. But, but for now, he continues to, to wind up the conversation. You heard me say to, the, say to you, I'm going uh, to the Father, and now I've told you before it takes place, Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. And finally, I want you to see Christ's motivation. Christ's main motivation. You say, for what? For everything that he did on earth. Why did Jesus do the things he did? I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The rule of the world there is Satan. He says, he has no claim on me. When he says, I will no longer talk much for you for the rule of this world is coming, I believe what he's, I believe what he's saying is, my, my time is winding down, my time is wrapping up, because the, the acts of Satan are, are going to be imposed on the earth, and the acts of Satan specifically in sending Jesus to the cross. We've already seen one uh, one work of Satan in the passage, one involvement of Satan in the passage in sending Jesus to the cross. Do you remember where it was? It was a few weeks ago. Jude, I heard someone say, Judas. When Satan had come into Judas. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, uh, the forces are at work now. And so it's, it's time we get this moving. And it's literally what Jesus is saying. But he reminds us, he's not in subjection to Satan. He has no claim on me. I'm not sure what your translation says, uh, but he has no claim on me is a good way to say it. But, but literally the Greek here has the idea that it, it says he, he is nothing to me or has nothing on me is probably the most literal translation. Uh, and we use that phrase sometimes in, in comparatives or in talking about sports teams or whatever. But literally the way to say this is, I, I will not 
I will no longer talk much with you for, for, the, for Satan is beginning his work. He has nothing on me, is literally the best way to say this. He's no threat to the Son of God. And Jesus is not insecure about this. Satan's coming, we better get a move on. Satan's coming, Satan's working, but by the way, he's got nothing on me. And I'm not being, I'm not being clever. That's literally what it says. I do, verse 31, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Why does Jesus do what he does? Within the whole unfolding of the plan of God, I do what the Father has commanded me. Do you know why Jesus did everything that he did? Obedience. He obeyed God. We reduce obedience down to this thing that it's just, we have to force it into our kids so they make our lives easier or they stop acting up or because we want them to be good kids or because we have good goals for them. And we think if we just teach them the songs and we have this phrase, the phrase in our house is obedience, we obey quick. I should make every say it. We, show, we, we obey quickly, sweetly, and completely. And we talk through all of those things. Obedience is so much bigger than parenting. When we obey and when we teach our children and our teenagers to obey, teenagers, listen, kids, listen. When you obey, you are being like Jesus. You see that? It's not just about behavior. It is about Christ-likeness. This is amazing. Jesus created the world Without John 1, without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the exact expression of God Almighty. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is obedient to God. And so in, in our theology that sometimes we make it so big and, and it's, it, it, we should, we should have a big theology of God, but let's not forget in our big, amazing, beautiful theology about Jesus, he was an obedient son. And me listening to the word of God and doing what it says is a matter of being like Jesus or not being like Jesus. And in obedience, what takes place? Look at this. So that, here's, the, here's what will occur when I obey my Father. The world will know that I love God. Why does Jesus do what he does? Now, listen, there's some huge ramifications to that question. We can ask it from the, from the happy part of it, right? Why did Jesus heal everybody? Why did Jesus do the signs? Why did Jesus whatever, and talk about all the things that we think are awesome that Jesus did because he obeyed God and he wanted people to know that he loves his Father. But why did Jesus die on the cross for the sins of humanity and take God's wrath for you and take God's vengeance for me? Why did he do that? Because he was an obedient son. And in obeying, he expresses his love for his Father. So why does Jesus do what he does? There's two answers. He obeys. And he obeys because he loves his Father. Every matter of submission in my life 
whether I give it to God or withhold it, can be reduced down to whether or not I love Him enough. Because Jesus' motivation for dying for sins. Now, I know what we mean when we say this, but I want to be really clear here. Does Jesus die because He loves sinners? Yes. But does, is that the primary reason He died? No. Jesus died because He loves His Father. The main motivation, loving motivation of Christ in going to the cross was because He loves His Father. And we are the benefactors of that expressed love. And so maybe rather than saying, when we're working through an issue in our life or a matter in our heart that we refuse to give over to God or a matter of bitterness that we're withholding or, or, or a sin struggle that, we, that, we, that we're not willing to get, to get help for or whatever, whatever the sin is in your life, Maybe rather than praying, God, just help me work through this sin. Help me get over it. Help me stop. Maybe our prayer should be, God, help me love you more. Because if I loved you like I should, I would do what I should. Christ's motivation for doing what he did in relation to his father has cosmic, mysterious, theological ramifications. I mean, we're talking Trinity. We're talking the the plans of God from eternity past. I mean, we're talking some huge, amazing things. But it is also so simple. And so where we are in every moment of our life, I'm either going to do what I should do because I love God, or I'm going to disobey because I don't. And remember in talking to his disciples, Jesus is laying out uh, his expectation. He's teaching them. And so we as disciples who are being taught from this passage should pray that God would grow our love for him. God, help me love you as you are for the way that you are, not for the way that you make me feel, not for the things that you do, not for the good things that you give me, for who you are. And when we come to the Word, help us, help me see you in the Word. Help me see a person who says things and does things and has a relationship with me. Do you love God? Do you love God? It's really that simple.